0: The Water Values Podcast, Session 118.
1: Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resource treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinnis.
0: Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thanks so much for joining me. We've got a great show for you today. We have Ben Sparrow, the CEO of Saltworks Technologies, a uh, water treatment firm out of Canada uh, that uh, does a lot of different things in the water treatment space, including zero liquid discharge, which is, is uh, we're going to talk a lot about uh, wastewater treatment and get into zero liquid discharge in this episode. But before we get to, uh, to Ben, the interview with Ben... Uh, Just a couple housekeeping items as normal. Uh, First off, I want to say thank you so much for those of you who rated the podcast over the last two weeks. We got two new uh, five-star ratings on iTunes. So thank you very much. And we got one great review from Aaron Portland. So Aaron, thank you so much for, for your review. And I'll go ahead and read it here real quick. It says, Dave. Thank you for putting this podcast out. I listen to all the episodes and find them inspiring and informative. Great work. Well, thank you, Aaron. I, I'm glad you find the podcasts helpful uh, in your line of work. And so uh, hopefully you find this one just as helpful as all the others. So uh, thank you very much. If you haven't read it or reviewed the podcast, please can, can you know consider leaving a, a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, whatever uh, podcast directory you use. I uh, would greatly appreciate uh, your help in, in getting the word out about the water values podcast. My next item of housekeeping, as you know, uh, I, I kind of you know, pay for the podcast out of my own pocket. And so any uh, donation you receive, you, you make to the podcast helps defray the cost of putting it on. So uh, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a donation. Uh, any denomination helps. Uh, you just go to the and scroll down a little bit and you'll see a uh, yellow PayPal donate button and you can uh, plug in any amount that you uh, deem fit in there. And it uh, again is greatly appreciated and goes uh, to helping defray the expense of putting on the podcast. Well, with that said, let's get on with it. Let's open the valves, fasten your seatbelts. And here we go with our interview with Ben Sparrow. Well, Ben, welcome to the water values podcast. So glad you could join us today. Could you, uh, could you start off our conversation, Uh, by providing a little detail on who you are and how you got interested in water.
1: David, thank you for having me. So, my name is Ben Sparrow. I'm an inventor and now CEO of company Saltworks Technologies. Saltworks is an advanced desalination company, but the way I started in water was not desalination. It was actually hydroelectric power. I spent the first decade of my career uh, working for British Columbia Hydro in Canada, Rebuilding large hydroelectric turbines, so making power from water. And that fascinated me. And it further fascinated me and others when I learned that you can actually make power by mixing fresh water and salt water. So that means wherever a river enters the ocean, you can generate power from that salinity gradient. And so in my nighttime and my evening's time, I was fiddling away, and I, I built a small machine that did this. Living in Vancouver, I was able to go down to the ocean and collect seawater samples. And it was all about power. And it made power, but it made a trickle current. Not very economic. But then in my continued fiddling, I found a way to somewhat reverse the process and came up with an innovation that could desalinate seawater using 60 to 80% less electrical energy. Uh, But it used... The Power of Atmospheric Dry Air. Now, that's a whole other topic. We basically spray salt water into the air, concentrate it up, and then use this really hyper-concentrated salt water as an energy source in a salt water battery with the hyper-concentrated on one side of a membrane, seawater on the other side of a membrane, and then these are ion exchange membranes, and they establish a voltage, and then pulling salt ions out of seawater itself. So it was a great fit theoretically, for countries that didn't have much water but had dry air, and there seemed to be nice overlap with that. So that's how I got started, and I had this innovation in my apartment. Promptly after that, I was evicted from the apartment because you're not supposed to build desalination plants inside of apartments. Um, however, that was the foundation of Saltworks. Saltworks is now uh, also almost a decade old, uh, we are not practicing that innovation. It was an elegant innovation. It got us funded. It uh, got us uh, an exclusive article in The Economist. But we really cut the invention in half. We split it into two. We have the membrane component where we make these really wonderful ion exchange membranes that can split the periodic table elements and do these fantastic things. And then we also have an evaporator crystallizer component for the company where we evaporate water. That was the original evaporation engine. We've become really good at evaporating complex waters. So my journey in water all started with power.
0: Got it. Now, uh, so so let's talk about wastewater initially. Um, I I, I want to get into the, the into saltworks and what its what its offerings are. But let's let's before we do that, let's talk about um, some of the uh, some some of the broader principles in 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 wastewater. You know, the previous guests I've had on mo. The the vast majority of the focus has been on the municipal side, on on essentially municipal wastewater treatment. We've done a little bit on the industrial side. I've had guests on on that speak about industrial process water and and cooling and things of that nature. Uh, uh, but could you kind of uh, uh, tell our audience about you know the some of the differences that that you see in the uh, industrial treatment industrial uh, wastewater sector versus say, a more traditional municipal wastewater sector.
1: Absolutely. And in, in fact, I'm, I'm going to back up a bit to a statement we all often hear about water being a basic human right. And, and that's a beautiful set of words, but I think many forget that then treatment of that wastewater should also be a basic human responsibility. So if we use it, then we should treat it after its use. And evolution has done a wonderful job at creating biology that can treat municipal wastewater, human waste, if you will. And that technology is out there and it exists and it can be built. However, evolution didn't plan for industrial development. And industrial wastewater is quite different than municipal wastewater. It's not, it can't readily be treated biology biology most of the time. It can have chemicals in it. It can have pick any ion from the periodic table of the elements. Um, Arsenic. It can have very high scaling compounds. Calcium's not bad for you, but calcium is terrible for water treatment systems. If it concentrates up and it can scale and foul a water treatment system. It can have complex organics. Hydrocarbon byproducts. It can have things like benzene. Um, Some of your listeners are no doubt aware of the issue of plastics in the ocean. So industrial wastewater is much more complicated, and evolution cannot take care of it. So you need to get into a different type of water treatment. And many times in industrial wastewater, that involves desalination, very similar to making fresh water from seawater, because you're trying to remove ions. There's there's ways to remove the organics. There's ways to remove the dirty stuff, and they tend not to be the most expensive part of the treatment process. But in industrial wastewater, the desalination component is where the expense starts, and I can uh, get into that a little bit more detail if you like.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let's hear about that. Let's because you know ultimately everything has to has to comply with comport with the bottom line, and and so if you can talk a little about the money, I think that would that would be helpful context for all of us.
1: Sure. So, industrial wastewater treatment is one of these typical situations of a curve or a cost curve that increases slowly and then ramps up dramatically, diminishing returns if if you will. So, let's start at the lower cost region. So, if one had an industrial wastewater challenge, and those challenges are usually driven by regulatory pressure. Yes, there's all this corporate responsibility stuff that goes on. However, We have really not seen action on the basis of corporate responsibility. It's driven by regulations, and it's also driven by Greenfield. Most of your listeners uh, probably know it. But what I mean by Greenfield is, say you're building a new factory. You want to get a permit for that new factory. Um, You're not under grandfathered regulations, so you need to treat water that, say, your neighbor didn't need to treat. Or you're building a new mine, or you're building a new oil and gas facility. So, largely, industrial wastewater treatment we see applies to new facilities. Now, the first thing one should do, if they want to start at the lower end of the cost curve, is work to prevent adding dirty stuff to the water. So, people treat water sometimes as, oh, it's just a wash down water, and we can um, use it to get rid of, to flush things away. So... Number one is conservation, both conservation of the water itself and conservation of what you're putting into it. because if you're an industrial process, you may be putting something of value into that water that you'd prefer to recover. So if you 're a mine and a copper mine, why let copper go out into your wastewater? Recover it. So minimize the amount of stuff you put in the water in the first place. Second step. And this is often where there's a tremendous innovation opportunity for people who practice industrial wastewater treatment is reduce the amount of chemicals that you add because whatever chemicals you add in order to treat that water, if, you're, if ultimately you need to achieve what's called zero liquid discharge, which we'll get into, you have to remove those chemicals later on. And so an, older, an old way, a previous method, sort of dates back to the time when Elvis Presley was still around of treating industrial wastewater, so add a bunch of chemicals to it. So add lime, add soda ash, add these chemicals to try and crash stuff out, which is fine and dandy. You may crash out arsenic, you may crash out some heavy metals, but all of a sudden you've increased the salinity load. And that salinity load that downstream you're going to have to take out. So step one, conserve. Step two, add less chemicals. Step three, membranes. Membranes are beautiful. They are by far the lowest cost treatment option available. If you, for example, wanted to build a seawater desalination plant, use reverse osmosis. It's a commoditized technology. There's been great strides made in lowering its energy. uh, Widely available, widely practiced. And I draw an analogy to seawater because that's where a lot of the industrial membrane knowledge comes from. And so use reverse osmosis. And often in an industrial plant, reverse osmosis may be able to recover 60, 70, 80% of your water. So that means, let's imagine it was 70%. So now you've recovered 70% as as pure water that can be reused. You've got this 30% brine left over, more concentrated junk. That's where the cost starts to come up. Once you get out of membranes, and membranes have their limits, dealing with that last 30% is where costs can increase by a factor of 5 or 10. And once you're out of membranes, you're starting to talk about boiling the water that's where there's the, the machines are more complex they're more expensive and they require more energy would you like me to go deeper into that aspect David
0: I, I, I number one I would number two um, I, I assume this is kind of where where saltworks takes over uh, with that kind of that brine stream you identified yeah saltworks and others okay, okay the nice thing. The nice thing about the water
1: sector is there's a lot of innovation going on. We're just um, one of of others, and I commend all of those other practitioners out there. Um, Saltworks is one of the only two companies in the world that practices both membranes, what I spoke about, and evaporation or thermal. And so it, it keeps us a little bit honest that we understand both and we understand their fit. The other company uh, was General Electric Water, which is now Suez, and a tremendous company. And there's, there's excellent other companies out there doing wonderful things to treat industrial water. Um, Veolia, Water Planet, um, Gradient, various, various companies. Saltworks is just one of
0: them. Okay. Um, uh, so, so yeah, so, um, one of the things that you, it, the first step you identified was conserve. The second step was don't put chemicals into it. So on, on the front end, I, I found it interesting. You said, you know, uh, for example, conserve, uh, it's not just conserve the water, it's conserve the materials. And you use the example of copper, how, you know, what are some of the strategies that, that, uh, companies and, and, you know, industrial users are employing in order to, to keep the stuff from getting into the water, from, the, from that element of the conservation? Great
1: question, and it will vary widely um, from facility to facility. But the first most simple thing is to reduce dilution. So there's this old famous phrase, everybody hears it, dilution is a solution to pollution. But dilution can also be a tremendous cost if you end up having to treat that water downstream. So, um, reduced dilution. Other things that companies are finding is water treatment can actually be a profit center. And I'll draw on one example. Um, Enhanced oil recovery. Push water underground to push out more oil. Now, it turns out that in some reservoirs, if you tune the salinity of that water carefully, you can recover more oil. You can make more money. And so, investing in water treatment in an EOR field can actually translate, in, translate into increased oil production, increased revenue and increased profitability at the same time while um, reducing wastewater discharge if it's done correctly. So that, that's just one example. I, I hope I answered your question, David. There's, there's other examples. Let's imagine um, you were a battery manufacturer and you have to buy expensive raw materials and then those raw materials are lost in your wastewater. So how can you improve your process so that those raw materials aren't going down the drain? And, and there's companies out there similar to Saltworks. Saltworks, is uh, we offer that service too um, under what we call ZLD Experts to help companies look at their processes and, number one, conserve and save as much money as possible. We tend to be terrible at selling our zero liquid discharge systems because we try to convince customers first you don't need them because once you start getting into zero liquid discharge, it does get expensive, and you really want it to be one of your last options
0: okay so so let's let 's get back to the brine stream and and talk about what happens on that uh, the, the last thirty percent or so after the membrane uh, applications have been have been uh, uh, used up you
1: bet. Okay, so you've used your membranes, and you've got this 30% that's more concentrated. It it may be sort of double the concentration of seawater, sort of uh, 65,000 milligrams per liter. That means 6.5% salt, which means it's still roughly 94% water. So now you really have no choice but to boil it. And if you imagine you put this double concentrated seawater into a pot, and you started boiling it, as you boiled it, it would become more and more concentrated, and then eventually solids would start crashing out you start to see salt form on the bottom of the pan and in industrial water the real challenges is a lot of the stuff that crashes out is scaling it, it's it's crusty so those of your listeners who happen to live in a region with hard water and they look up at their shower head and they see this white crusty stuff around their shower head that's scale and um you know our, our bones are made of calcium for example wonderful in our bones terrible in a water system Scale will cover up membranes upstream. It'll also cover up uh, heat transfer services like the bottom of the pot. And then you need to use more energy and you need more heat transfer area and cost starts to go up. So the real challenge in evaporation systems is scale management. And that's where Saltworks comes in. What we did, and we were, ben- we were lucky enough to work with uh, two very large oil and gas companies who taught us about all the problems they've had with evaporation systems in the past. And we got to go under the hood and take out those components. So, for example, I mentioned scaling. There are tubes, heat transfer tubes inside evaporators that scale and foul, and they cost a lot of money, and they use a lot of energy. So we took them out, got rid of them through innovation completely. We use a different type of system. The other one is is that evaporation costs a lot of energy. And the beauty in evaporation is as you evaporate, when you evaporate, you've got this warm, humid steam that's energy. And that's energy that can be recovered. And so we borrowed something from seawater desalination that had been practiced in the Middle East. It's called multiple effect evaporation. So you boil the water once, and you've got this humid, this steam. You then recondense that steam at a lower temperature, and you get that energy back on condensation. So we we took that. And so we could lower the energy consumption by a factor of four, because you can boil and condense the water four times so you put in one unit of energy, you get four units of water out. And then we were able to use modern material science. And rather than building the machine out of stainless steel that will rust or titanium that's very expensive, we built it out of fiberglass, gel-coated fiberglass. So it'll, it'll last longer than any of us. It'll end up, um, we'll end up dead in the ground before it ends up in a landfill in a corrosive environment. And the beauty of gel-coated is it's much like Teflon in your frying pan. So scale and crust doesn't like to stick to it. So we put a whole bunch of art together, standing on the shoulders of others, to develop a evaporation system that's much more reliable, that doesn't scale, that doesn't crust up, and it uses less energy. And um, we've been putting those systems out into industry now in North America And I'd be happy to talk more about that, but I know we want to stay technical and stay on topic. So I'll pass it back to you. Yeah.
0: So I've got a number of questions about what you just said, but let's start with uh, the 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 process of evaporation and then condensation, and what? So when when you do that, I assume you're you're pulling cooling out of the out of the um, out of the the process, and you're using the either. Cooling or heating uh, in some other component of the industrial process, or are you you recirculating that energy back into the entire uh, evaporation process?
1: Sure. So every situation is different, and and it's not just for our process but for others too. Um, When you need to boil water, when you have to go that far, you have to put energy in. And in any system where you add heat, you've mentioned cooling, David, you're spot on. You have to cool it as well. And so in between that hot source and that cold source, that's where you put your thermal desalination engine. Now, it becomes interesting, and I think you're alluding to this, is where one can use waste heat. So a lot of industrial processes will have waste thermal energy and harnessing that to do desalination. That's easy to say. It sounds beautiful on the surface. There's a cost to doing it. Often waste heat tends to be lower temperature, which means you need larger heat exchangers. The waste heat may not be in a location um, next to where you want to put your water plant, but sometimes you get lucky. And, and I can give you an example.
0: Yeah, let's hear it. Let's hear it. I w- I'd love to hear how this was put into practice.
1: You bet. Um, so we recently completed a plant, and I really have to commend the project developer and the owner for this. It's um, near a landfill. And uh, landfills produce landfill gas. It's a waste product of decomposition. And a lot of landfills have installed engines that 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 burn that landfill gas and create power. Now, normally, that landfill gas might be flared and burned off to the atmosphere. So in my view, this is clean power they're making. Because it was going to be burned anyways, but guess what? You got electricity out of it. So step one, waste gas becomes clean power. And that landfill gas is burned in these really large reciprocating engines, basically an engine similar to your car. And inside your car, you have a radiator. You've got to keep your engine cool. Everybody knows their car can overheat. And so there's water circulating through your car engine to keep it cool. So what we did on this recent project is we coupled our, our salt maker thermal system to their engines. And so we're taking heat off of their engines, the waste heat off of their engines, and we're using it to run the evaporation process. So it's free energy. And beneficially, they no longer need to run this radiator. This is a giant engine, and this radiator has a motor on it. So that motor isn't running. So the engine produces more net power out, and we also make fresh water. Beneficially, two things are going into this system. Waste gas, waste industrial water, two products are coming out clean power and clean water and uh, it was a really exciting project and there's uh, more are coming and other companies are working on this so there are opportunities out there to harness waste heat and lower the energy consumption and produce clean water at the same time
0: yeah i mean that's obviously that sounds like a win-win-win all the way around can you talk a little uh i mean if you're able talk a little about the economics of that yeah,
1: you bet. And maybe I'll, I'll talk in in general for your listeners. So yeah. um, I'll give numbers. Uh, seawater desalination. Let, let's calibrate to that. In fact, I'm going to go way back. Let's calibrate to the water that comes out of your tap or at a factory. You're probably paying anywhere from 65 cents to a dollar fifty per cubic meter. And and forgive me being Canadian. I'm using the Queen's units. So that's <laughs> up, <laughs> that's, that's maybe a dollar for 250 gallons. But let's use Queen's units. Let's use a cubic meter. Okay, so let's call it a dollar for water out of your tap per cubic meter. Now, if you built a seawater desalination plant in the developed world, after you account for permitting and power and everything else, and you wrap it all up, you're looking at about $2 to $3 per cubic meter for seawater desalination. So desal is more expensive than traditional water
0: sources. Um, Yep, that lines up with what I've heard, so... Okay. So continue sure. on. Yeah, continue on. I'm glad I'm not telling you. A lot. <laughs> um,
1: then, so now if you're treating industrial water, let's go to that world. There's sort of a get-out-of-bed price for treating industrial water with membranes. That tends to be about $3 per cubic meter once you wrap it all in. Um, people can do economics and put lipstick on them and make them look cheaper, but once you account for capital cost, and you account for energy and you account for permitting and you account for operating the thing, it's about 3 bucks uh then and that's the membrane system and as the membrane system concentrates up it may concentrate up to about five dollars so that the cost is increasing as your water becomes more concentrated so five dollars now to answer your question to get into a thermal system do not get out of bed for less than 25 dollars a cubic meter wow yeah the costs go way up factor of five
0: yeah but but and and so that's the cost side what about what about the cost savings side kind of the, the the revenue side in terms of uh, pro- the production of clean power and uh, clean water you know because you 're going to have to net the cost versus the savings that you 're generating on the other side so so you know what what do those look like in terms of obviously it'll depend on the locale and what the local water prices are, but do you have a a sense for uh, you know, what the net is for for companies that have used this technology?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, so these sorts of technologies tend to be competing against evaporation ponds, real estate basically, and trucks. So if somebody had a membrane system, a membrane system might make sense to recover water because the water is valuable. But your, your membrane brine rarely would the value of the clean water pay for the, the thermal system. You're, you're really p- it really pays for itself because it's offsetting a more expensive alternative. So um, I happen we happen to operate out of Vancouver, Canada. Very expensive real estate here. And there's a project I know of where they're planning to decommission a pond because the real estate that that pond is on is worth more than the cost of building a treatment plant. Alternatively, in the oil and gas sector, um, I I may not get this figure right, but I think there's something like 7 billion barrels, billion, of wastewater disposed of in North America last year. So this is wastewater that's pumped underground into, into disposal wells or disposal caverns. And a good chunk of that is actually put in trucks and driven to those disposal wells. And so when you add all of that up in some oil and gas climates, the cost of trucking and the cost of disposal can be quite high. Um, It can be, for example, in the United States, uh, Marcellus, so around Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, that's one of the higher water cost management regions. And give me a second while I convert. That can be $40, $50 per cubic meter to put in a truck and and drive it far away. And so if you can treat it for $25 a cubic meter, you save money, and, and that helps your bottom line.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so uh, the $25 per cubic meter sounds expensive, but really when you compare it to the other methods of disposal and you take kind of an all in approach to it, it actually, it it sounds like it's going to pencil out, you know, fairly well.
1: It It, it can. It's case by case for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, Okay.
1: Yeah. Especially if there's um, some value. In the solids that you produce, so we're working on a project that I can't say much about right now. But um, we're producing uh, salt that the company needs to use for ice melting, and uh, they'd have to import this salt otherwise. So you can extract some beneficial byproducts as you boil water down and produce a solid from it.
0: Yeah. So can you talk a, a little more about that? About the 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 products that the, the solids that come out of of the process? I mean, typically, uh, are, are oftentimes these solids, are they marketable like the, the snow, you know, the, essentially what sounds like sodium chloride that you, uh, must be making for this other company or, uh, do, do, do they have a value that, that you can kind of generate additional income with, with the solids or is it pretty much just, you're going to throw it away?
1: Yeah, absolutely. David, it's again, one of these, uh, case by case situations. So we've, seen projects um, where there is a value but it all starts i'll go right back to the beginning it all starts about what is put in the water to begin with so the, the pot of water analogy on your stove top all the water evaporates and whatever junk was in there is left behind so that's why it's so important if one is going to move towards practicing what the industry calls zero liquid discharge be careful what you put in it because you complete your end product um in certain, certain waters, it's impossible to reuse the, the solids. Um, let's say, for example, landfills. Landfill leachate, uh, we, we put our trash in there. Um, who knows what's going in there? So landfill leachate solids can be quite complex and less opportunity to reuse. But there are regions, for example, um, the shale gas fields in northern Canada, the water that comes up with them, it's, it's very almost, I will not say pure, but pretty darn near pure sodium chloride. And so there's an opportunity to recover sodium chloride um, from that sort of water. And then, lo and behold, sodium chloride is an industrial product that's not only used for uh, salting roads, but it's also used in pulp mills to make paper, um, to make bleach, and it's used in chloralkali to make chemicals. And in this region, there happens to be pulp mills. And so there are opportunities to marry wastewater treatment to industries and help them lower their costs of, say, importing salt all the way up from Mexico, which is where it's presently imported from. Um, it Really, really case by case, David. And that's where um, companies should either take a look at their chemistry, look at what they're putting into it, uh, or find somebody who can understand this. these sorts of things. They, I'm not trying to pitch our services, but they can take a look at our website, saltworkstack.com. And we try to provide guidance on this. And um, we have engineers who they can talk with and, and see if there's an opportunity or not.
0: Yeah. How involved is it to, to figure out what the water chemistry is to see if, if there might be a byproduct coming out of the, the water treatment process that might be marketable
1: oh very easy um imagine a a water bottle that you buy at your local convenience store fill up one of those and send it to a lab and out comes a report uh for for companies and we we can hold hands with the, the the person who's trying to investigate this and help them through that process or they can ship us the water so pretty straightforward
0: yeah yeah all right so you know i i kind of uh uh, allow this interview to, to go on pretty, pretty long without really asking you one of the main questions that I wanted to ask, which is, and, uh, so it may seem strange coming you know closer to the end of the interview than the beginning, but, uh, could you tell us just a little about zero liquid discharge and what exactly is meant by zero liquid discharge and, you know, are there various forms or strata of it? I mean, could you just kind of educate us about that, please?
1: Absolutely, David. And I would um, mentioned the term a few times. So, zero liquid discharge, in its simplest concept, means you've got this system and you put dirty water into it, and only two things come out. Clean water and all of the contaminants reduced to a solid. So that pot-on-the-stove analogy. The water's completely removed and you've got all the junk left as a solid. Now, Zero liquid discharge has been experiencing sort of slow, steady growth because of its cost and because it's a new sector, which is wonderful because there's a lot of opportunity for innovation. And it's practiced differently in different countries. And I can get into that if you like, but I will just close with zero liquid discharge again. People have to remember the cost curve. The closer you approach true solids, the costs start to go up. So there is something also called near zero liquid discharge. And sometimes that's more beneficial. So squeeze, squeeze, squeeze the water as much as you can to make a really, really concentrated slurry and then deal with that concentrated slurry. Maybe put that in a truck and drive it to your disposal well. That may be more cost effective than going all the way to zero liquid discharge. And um, we have links on our website on how to work out those economics. We have an infographic where the user can work through a very, very simple cost calculation. Maybe they need steps A and B and don't do step C. It varies case by case.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, well, very good. You know, you've been, I think, terrific. I've learned a tremendous amount about zero liquid discharge and kind of the inputs and the, the various factors that, that affect it. Uh, you know, is, there, is do you have some closing comments before I kind of ask, ask you about uh, – Uh, where folks can go to get additional information? I mean, have I missed anything, or is there anything else you'd like to say that that we haven't touched on yet? Well, David,
1: it's been a real pleasure uh, being here today, and I, I hope I haven't scared your listener with the cost. I think people need to look at zero liquid discharge and industrial water treatment as an opportunity, and I'll give you a real example. There was a diamond mine in northern Canada that was shut down approximately a year ago. This is a diamond mine. It makes diamonds. And it was shut down all because they couldn't treat the water. Underground mine shaft, saline water entering the mine shaft. And they had to treat the water to zero liquid discharge. And there just wasn't technology available to them that could treat it. And so this is an opportunity to reopen that diamond mine if such a technology was available. So look at it as an opportunity. And there are people out there who um, know this sort of stuff. I've mentioned our company. There's other company names. And uh, who knows, maybe it'll help your economics, maybe it'll bring up, maybe it'll make past sites that were previously uneconomic, economically feasible again. It can be an economic development opportunity.
0: Yeah, well, well said. And, uh, you know, for those who want to find out more about you, find out more about SaltWorks, uh, where can they go to get that information?
1: Um, Well, obviously, we all love Google. So Google Zero Liquid Discharge. Um, You can Google SaltWorks. You can go directly to our website, which is saltworkstech.com and uh, we've got a drop down with resources of presentations probably the easiest thing is to find our infographic on our website which is a simple graphic it explains zero liquid discharge and walks the person through uh, the costs and should they do steps a b and skip c or do a b c and uh, they can contact us we we love talking about this stuff we'll talk your ear off um, <laughs> we love exchanging knowledge so uh, give us a shout or give one of the other great companies out there practicing this art a shout and um, see if there's a fit.
0: Awesome. Well, hey, Ben, really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk to you soon.
1: David, thanks so much. I look forward to listening to your next podcast, sir.
0: You betcha. All right. Bye, Ben.
1: Okay. Bye for now.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ben Sparrow. And, and, and I thought Ben did a great job breaking the water treatment process down into the, its various components. You know, Conservation, don't put stuff in the water. Uh, don't add chemicals. Uh, and then, then use your um, uh, membranes, and then you can get into you know after the membranes, that's when the costs start going up. But I, I think it's great to kind of break it into those components, uh, so you can understand the, the the process a little more. And maybe th- that uh, explains, I think, a lot of the innovation that's going on in the wastewater treatment space right now uh, is because you know you can you can focus that technology on on any one of those those areas those segments of the treatment process and so I think that is a, a really interesting uh, component in terms of how we're uh, how we're how we're innovating in the treatment of wastewater well you can check out the show notes for this session at the watervalues.com forward slash pod one one eight leave a comment on those show notes show notes or email me at david at thewatervalues.com you can also tweet at me at my Twitter handle which is at dTM one nine nine three. And you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag #WaterValues. Uh, and like I said at the top of the show, please do me a favor if you've enjoyed the show, rate or review it on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, whatever podcast directory you're listening on. That's greatly appreciated. You can also sign up for the Water Values newsletter at thewatervalues.com. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.